Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, we'll be hearing from Tom Cantor as he tells us his life story of how he came to put his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Over one million people have heard and received his story, how the Lord filled an empty soul and took a purposeless life and gave it purpose. Tom, how do you feel about so many people knowing your own life story? Well, there are parts of my story which I'm not proud of, and there are parts that I'm ashamed of, but for better or for worse, that's what happened. But what makes it so great, or the best part of my story, is not about me. It's nothing about me. What's so great is about the one who saved me, about the one who cleansed me, about the one who fulfilled me, about the one who changed me. That one is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that as a lost sinner, I'm not the exception. I know that what he's done for me, he can do that and he does do that. He'll do it for anyone. That's the reason why I'm happy to tell my story because this is a story of how a poor, lost, desperate Jewish young man found lasting hope and gladness. Why? All because the Lord Jesus Christ is in the business of bringing hope and gladness to Jewish people, and for that matter, to all people. Hi, my name is Tom Cantor, and I'd like to tell you about the greatest thing that happened in my life. You know, I'm a a scientist. I graduated from University of California, San Diego in biochemistry, and and, um, I started a business in my garage with just $130. A local businessman is changing lives one country at a time. Tom Cantor started out with $130, and now he's the largest employer in Santee, Tecate, and has opened a branch in Ethiopia. 10 News reporter Sharice Yu shares what he's giving his employees and how they're benefiting. Mother of two, Guadalupe Aragon has big hopes even when she has so little. The simple task of washing dishes takes her outside of her home, a home she and her son built with their bare hands. I put in piece by piece, one by one. She lives and work in Tecate, a small town in Mexico. I don't pay rent, and it's mine. This is Guadalupe's home. The roof is made out of plywood. The floor, shingles. Her refrigerator, a cooler. And in the bathroom, no running water. She hauls water to use in her kitchen, her bathroom, and to wash clothes. It's hardly a home for some, but to her and her family, it's the best house they've ever owned. (laughs) This is my kitchen. My bathroom. Her new life starts small, but is made possible because she makes two times more than minimum wage at her job at Scanabody's laboratory in Tecate, a company that makes the first response pregnancy test. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world in Ethiopia, these Muslim women have a connection to Guadalupe. They're working for the same company, only thousands of miles away. Water here is scarce. Showers are even harder to come by. Some of these kids walk for three hours barefoot up 12,000-foot untrailed mountains. Women work for a chance at life. We want to, first of all, start off by hiring only women, paying them six times what their wages normally, so that we can say, 
This person is now the important breadwinner. They're all employed by Tom Canner of Al Cajon. With just $135, his quest began in his garage. Now it's grown to three international branches. But this company is different. We know we're training people for life here. We know that, and that's a responsibility that we don't take lightly. It's based on Christian faith. We're just humanity helping humanity, and that's what it's all about. The company has no debt and no investors. Canner makes sure everyone gets free health care, including dental and eye exams. Daycare is also available on-site for employees. Teaching kids about health starts young. We instruct the parents and we say, you know, it's not all about lard and tortillas. This is a balanced meal, something I never got the benefit of when I was growing up. No, I'm just joking. No one here goes hungry. For just $1, employees here at Scanabodies can eat as much as they want for lunch and breakfast. It's a stark contrast, just feet away in the streets of Tecate where sometimes these kids do go hungry. With photojournalist Michael Gonzalez, Sharice Yu, 10 News. But that's not the message that I want to bring to you today, and that's not the greatest thing that happened in my life. This last Sunday I was in church. Someone could come up to me and could say to me, what's a nice Jewish boy like you doing in church? And so I want to tell you what happened to me. First of all, you gotta, I want to take you back a little bit to my beginning uh, I was born into a Jewish family. Both my parents were Jewish. My, my uh, grandfather on my father's side was a line of rabbis and cantors from Lithuania. My great-grandfather was a rabbi uh, cantor in, uh, in uh, Pittsburgh. My grandfather was a rabbi in Petersburg, Virginia. And then before that, they were all rabbis and cantors in Lithuania. I was just what you would call a really rotten kid. I was so bad that when I was seven years old, my parents put me into military school. Now, first of all, I got to tell you, Jewish parents do not put their children in military school. It's very unusual, but they did. And the first thing they told me when I was in military school was that they said to me, this is a fire alarm. Don't touch the fire alarm. Well, that was my invitation. Every day I had to touch the fire alarm. And so one day I touched the fire alarm and, and, and the glass was loose and the fire alarm went off. So when I was eight years old, I got a dishonorable discharge, unprecedented. And so then life went on. And when I was 15 years old, my dad was just beside himself, didn't know what to do. So he sent me to his friend who was the head of psychology at UCLA. And he said to his friend, tell me what's wrong with the boy. And so we talked. The psychologist asked me a lot of questions. I answered the questions. I was really on my better behavior that day. I, I, and he came to the conclusion, and he told my dad, the boy is good. Now, I, I could have changed that, but anyway. He said, the boy is good. The city of Los Angeles is bad. Send him away to a boarding school. So my dad looked, and he found a boarding school in Switzerland, in Montreux, and he sent me there. And so here I was, 15 years old. I was all alone, sent on a plane, an overnight flight from Los Angeles to New York. I arrive in New York in the morning, got my trunk, mainly filled with my record albums. It's back 1965. And uh, I went immediately to the Queen Mary. That's, where I was, that's how I was going to get overseas. Gave them my trunk, spent the day in New York, was really enjoying this newfound freedom. I was all alone. 
and about uh, about three o'clock or so, went on the Queen Mary. Uh, as I remember, the the, uh, the the Queen Mary left around five. Everybody rushed to the back of the boat, took out their handkerchiefs, waved them goodbye to people who were waiting there uh, at the dock. And and I thought to myself boy, there's nobody here for me. I just had this terrible sinking feeling. I'm going to a place I'd never been to before. But as the boat took off, I had come to learn that there were four other students who were on the same boat, going to the same school, and they were all girls, so things were looking up. So anyway, so I, we arrived in, in France, took the, the train over to Switzerland, and it was only about seven weeks into the school, and I got picked up by the police for drinking alcohol in the city and for fighting. It was on a Saturday, and the school said, you remember when you came to this school that we made you and all the students deposit a one-way ticket back home? They said, we're going to use that for you. You are expelled tomorrow. You're going back home. And I didn't want to go back to Los Angeles. So what I did is I put some razor blades in my back pocket. I waited till um, there was no students in the front foyer of the of the school there. I went to the top of the stairs. I threw my books and I pretended like I rolled down the stairs. Then I yelled out that I couldn't get up. And so an ambulance came, took me to the hospital. And when I got there, they said to me, this is a, a, a container. We need a urine specimen from you. So I said, okay. So they left the room, took out the razor blades. I nicked this finger. I put in three drops of blood into the urine, mix it up and go, here you go. That was my first introduction to being a chemist. Anyway, so the, the, they came back in and they said, oh, you damaged your kidney. And I said, oh, you're kidding. Sounds terrible. So anyway, time went on. They kept giving me urine specimens in the hospital. I kept nicking fingers. After a while, I was running out of fingers. And finally, I think it was on a Tuesday, they came back in and they said, you know, your kidneys, they're just not healing. And so we're thinking about surgery. I said, surgery? So I had an immediate recovery. Well, that was enough time for my father to have found another school for me in uh, Lausanne, where I went for two years. And I stayed in school, and, but uh, unfortunately I got into another type of trouble I found, which was immorality with women, and that just um, left me with a distinct... First of all, the first thing it did is it created for me bad memories. And then I used to have with those bad memories a very strong feeling inside that I was dirty. I felt dirty inside. I felt unclean. I felt filthy. And it became for me a a horrible haunt. And so what used to happen is that I used to take showers for long, long periods of time, as long as two hours. And people in the school would say, what's he doing in there? And I'd be washing and washing and trying to clean myself. And oh yeah, the outside of my body was very clean. But inside, as soon as those memories would come back, the feeling of that dirtiness and of that filthiness would continue to haunt me. So I carried this like disease back to the States where I went to school at Miami University in Ohio. And I just didn't know what to do, and it was driving me so crazy. I was thinking, maybe I'll just end life because I can't go on with this feeling of feeling so dirty and unclean and unfit inside. And so what I thought to myself, I thought, you know, maybe if I get a girlfriend, I can distract myself, forget about my past, and I'll be okay. So at our school there at Miami University, down in the basement, they had listening booths. 
Now, these were the days of, the, of records, and so you went to the person who was in charge, you told him what music you wanted, he would pipe it into one of the listening booths, and you listened to the music in there. Well, each one of the listening booths were lined up, and they had windows on the doors. So I stood back and I said to myself, window shopping. This is like window shopping. I'll go find the pretty girl. And so I started going down the line there and looking in there, and all of a sudden I saw this really pretty girl, blonde hair, blue eyes. She's my wife today. We've been married 40 years. But anyway, this is how it happened. And so I thought, boy, I'd really like to get to know that gal. So I knock on the door, and I open the door. I said, excuse me, I want to listen to the same music you're listening to, but there's no booths available. I didn't know that. That's what I said. So she later told me, she said, it sounded so sad. She said, she said, sure, come on in. So we get in there, and all of a sudden I hear this strange music. And she said, so tell me, what interests you in African tribal music? <laughs> I thought to myself, African tribal music? I said, well, I quick answers, and then subject was changed. I didn't want to tell her. I'm interested in you, not the music. But anyway, we start talking, and I'm pouring out my heart a little bit. And I said to her, you know, I'm Jewish. And she says to me, Oh, she goes, uh, I'm not Jewish, she says, but I love the Jews. And I stopped and, I, and I, I said to myself, now wait a minute. I said, I just came from high school in Switzerland where all of our teachers were North Africans. They were from Morocco, from Algeria, from Tunisia, from Libya. I said, they were all from that part of the world. And I said, after two years of having those as my teacher, I came away convinced nobody loves the Jews. So I don't really think anybody loves the Jews. So why do you tell me that you love the Jews? She picked up a book, a very well-worn book. She picked it up. She said, you see this book? And I said, yeah. And she said, this is my favorite book. She goes, it's a Bible. I said, okay. And she said, you see these pages? I said, yeah. She said, there's not one page in this book that wasn't written by a Jew. My favorite book was written all by Jews. I said, okay. And then she said, my favorite person? I said, yeah. Was the Lord, is the Lord Jesus Christ? He's a Jew. Oh, okay. Well, we didn't really talk much about that subject, and time went on, and, and uh, we fell in love. And so I went back home to my father. I said, I met a girl. He said, he had one question, one question. Um, it wasn't, is she pretty? But the question was, is she Jewish? And so when I said, no, oh, it was a huge explosion. And he said, look, I sent you money every month so that you should join the Jewish fraternity Hillel on campus. You didn't. Now look what happened. Now you have a girlfriend that's not Jewish. He said, listen, we're going to fix this. He says, I'm calling my friend Dr. Newman. We're going to drive from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, and during that time, we're going to talk. That was really code for they're going to talk and I'm going to listen. So the whole five-hour trip, I got a strong lecture that had this continuing theme, and the theme was all the Nazis were Christians. You cannot trust anybody who is not Jewish. So therefore, and the conclusion of the lectures were always the same, Break the relationship. Well, for me, that was again like, don't touch the fire alarm. So I went back to Ohio, 
And I told my wife at that time, I, I, was, I mean, I told my girlfriend at that time, I said, we have to get married immediately. She was a little bit set back. She said, you know, where I come from, there's usually a proposal involved or something like that. I said, okay, I propose. Will you marry me? We, let's do it quickly. So we went to the Justice of the Peace in, uh, in, in Cincinnati. And uh, we said, we want to get married. And they, they looked at her and they said, how old are you, young lady? And she said, 21. So they said, okay. They turned to me and they said, and how old are you, young man? And I said, 19. They go, oh, you're 19. They pulled out a piece of paper and they said, this is where your father signs. This is where your mother signs. I looked at him in dismay and I said, it's not going to happen. My father's not going to sign this. I said, sorry, can't get married here. So I said, well, what can we do? And they said, you know that river south of the city, the Ohio River? I said, yeah. He said, go over it. Go south. Go to Kentucky. They don't care if you're eight years old, they'll marry you there. And if you're first cousins, it doesn't matter to them. I said, okay. So it was Saturday night, so we went over there. And we went into some bar. And I said, anybody know where the Justice of the Peace is? And, and they said, yeah, he's over at the bar here. He's over here. His name was Ducky Mater. So we went there and... And uh, he said, yeah, I have my office right next to the bar. So we went there, and, and uh, he stood there and held the Bible and asked some questions. I said, I do, I do, I do, and, uh, which basically meant I want, I want, I want her. And so we got married. So anyway, so then I, I um, called my parents. As I said, my mother and father were divorced. I asked my mom. I, said, I, said, I told my mom. I said, Mom, I'm married. She said, oh, that's wonderful, Tommy. How do you like married life? And I said, it's great, Mom. I should have done it years ago. And she said, but you're only 19. Well, called my dad. Huge explosion. I mean, we couldn't talk on the phone. Hang up. Anyway, so then the next phone call I got was from my uncle, who was a surgeon in Florida, Uncle Jack. And Uncle Jack calls me. He says, Tommy, he says, uh, I understand what's happened. He said, uh, I'd like to speak to you on behalf of the family. I said, yeah. He says, this is the way it's going to be. You will come to this certain place. We will all be there. The family will be there. No one will say a word. On the table will be a large amount of money. You will take the money. You will go out. You'll get a quick divorce. You will forget about everything that's not Jewish, and no one will ever speak about this again. He said, that's proposal A. And I said, and what's proposal B? He said, proposal B is, have a nice life. Well, now I'm in business. I was broke at that time. I should have taken the money and then done proposal B, but I didn't. I just said, I'll take proposal B. All right. So we go on, broke, but I get a job with the railroad, and I'm married to the girl of my dreams, and I'm thinking to myself, everything's going to be all right now. But the tragedy was, is that the memories kept surfacing in my mind. And as they did, the feeling of dirtiness and defilement and uncleanness kept coming and plaguing my heart. The disease hadn't left. And so I was just thinking, what in the world am I going to do? Now, I have to tell you, I discussed this with no one. No one knew what I was thinking. This was extremely personal. But I was just thinking to myself, what can I do? I've tried everything I possibly can. And then I thought to myself, maybe God. So I got a Bible. And I, I needed alone time. So I told my wife, you know what? I have to work two hours every day extra. So don't look for me. For, I'll be a couple hours late. 
And so I decided that that was going to be the time when I was going to find God. And so what I did is I, 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 after work, I got the Bible and, and I, I set it down. And I thought, well, you know what? I should start with a prayer and, and uh, I, I should pray. And well, you know, I'd gone to bar mitzvah school, so I, I memorized lots of prayers. But I said, I don't want those prayers. They're not even in my language of English. They were all in Hebrew and they all started with Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam. And, 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 I, and I, I said, no, I don't want that kind of prayer. I said, I want a prayer from my heart. So I, 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 I prayed and I said, oh God. And then I thought, no, I want a prayer that's really honest, that's really for me. So I said, oh God, if there is a God. And then I thought to myself, now what do I say? I said, well, I'm just going to say what's in my heart. Two words. Help me. Amen. So I thought, okay, now, got to find God. And I said to myself, I'm going to find God in this book. I'm going to, God is going to be found in this book. I'm going to die if I need to trying to find God in this book. But if, if there is a God, I'm going to find him in this book. So I opened up the book. First of all, I looked at the book and I said to myself, oh, so many pages in this book. Where do you start? I mean, how can I read all these, these pages? Well, you know, when I opened it up, I noticed that there was two parts in the, bo- in, in the book. The first part was called the old, and the second part was a little bit smaller, called the new. And I thought to myself, well, I don't want anything old. I want something new. So I started in the new. And so I began to read in the book of Matthew, in the first book in the New Testament. And as I read, it was, it was hard going. I thought I was reading Shakespeare. It was the old English and... But I, and I kept pushing, but I kept searching because, I've, because, I, because inside of me was this drive. I've got a disease. I've got a disease. I must find the solution. God is going to bring the solution to me. That was interesting. Now, Tom, some of our listeners might say that having a rabbi for a grandfather and a Beverly Hills doctor for a father, that you had it all. Yet you describe your life as one of hopelessness, even with thoughts of suicide. What kept you from just giving up? You know, I didn't know the Bible at that time. But since that time, I found a verse that really captures for me what kept me going. And it's a verse that was written by David, king of Israel, and to Psalms, and in Psalm 42, verse 11, David asks himself a question, and then he answers it. And the question he asks is, why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? So what David is really saying here is, is why am I depressed? Why do I feel like I'm thrown down on the ground? Why am I so troubled with so much turmoil within me? That's the questions that David asked. And that's the way I felt. I felt depressed. I felt like I was run over. I felt like there, there was no hope. I felt like I was standing in the, in, in, in the ocean and the waves were breaking on me, and I was just trying to hold on to the ground I was standing on without being knocked down and washed out and lost at sea. Exactly the way David expressed it here. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? What's the trouble? And he said this. He said, hope 
thou in God. For I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. I realized I didn't have God. I didn't have friendship with God. But like I was saying, I knew that I needed to find God. I needed to find friendship with God. And I was going to find God in that book, the Bible, or I was going to die in the process of doing it. And so it was that drivingness to, I'm going to find God, and my hope is in God, and God is going to become my God. And what I found was that the greatest obstacle for me as a Jewish person was to come to that place where I realized God is crystallized in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's God. And when I found the Lord Jesus Christ as God, then the depression left, the feeling of cast down left, everything left, and I found him. And then life has become, since that point, just a continuation of praising him. And the more I praise him, the healthier inside he makes me every day. Thank you for joining us today. Tomorrow, Tom will continue with his life story. If you'd like to learn more about Tom Cantor or Israel Restoration Ministries, visit our websites at friendshipwithgod.org or israelrestoration.org. There you'll find more resources to help you with your friendship with God. Join us again tomorrow at this same time.